Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, so I am a fertility doctor. And today we are going to talk all about the egg retrieval. So this is preparing you for the egg retrieval. And I have to admit, this is because more than ever, I've been a fertility doctor for over 10 years, and I'm getting so many questions and so many patients afraid of the egg retrieval. And this is really because of the New York Times podcast, The Retrievals. So we're going to talk about that. Then I'm going to talk about why you should not be afraid and the differences and just really what you should know about the retrieval, what you should do to prepare, what you should expect afterward, and ultimately help you feel more comfortable because I know this is a really scary part of IVF for many people. Before we dive in, Just want to do a few housekeeping items. So first of all, if you're new here, welcome. We're so excited to have you. The As A Woman podcast has over 3 million downloads and every single day I'm just shocked by it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Every episode at the end, I answer some of your top fertility questions. We call this for fertility sake FFS. You can ask your question for fertility sake on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. So when you ask your questions, we will pull some, answer them on Instagram. Some will be selected for the podcast, and then some will also be answered in the newsletter. I love the weekly newsletter, has some of my favorite recipes, has some of my favorite things, life updates, but really it's a way for you to get some information. So I answer some of your fertility questions, and I also talk about fertility in the news, some of those trending topics that you might be curious, is that legit or what is going on? You can subscribe to the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Very easy. And every six weeks, we do a fertility Q&A episode. These are my absolute favorite episodes because we get tons of questions on Instagram, but we don't get that many questions on the voicemail. So you can call 657-229-3672 and I can answer your question. So just call, leave a voicemail, leave your name or don't. It is of no difference to me, but then I can really answer your question. So these are my favorite. If I got enough, I would truly do just those into eternity. But We do them about every six weeks, so call, leave a question, and I cannot wait to answer them. Again, that is 657-229-3672. All right, so when you do IVF, what is IVF? IVF is getting one month's group of eggs all to grow and then taking those eggs out of the body and then fertilizing them, growing them into embryos in the lab, and then taking an embryo and putting it directly into the uterus. Now, we know that every month you have an entire cohort of eggs available The size or the number of them correlates with your ovarian reserve or how many eggs you have remaining. People who have a lot of eggs remaining have a high number of eggs available every month. I always use a vault analogy. Imagine all your eggs are inside a vault. Every month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault. The vault wants to be at equilibrium. So when you have more in the vault, more come out every month. When you have fewer, fewer come out. 
when you're doing IVF. In its simplest form, what we're trying to do is get one month's group of eggs all to grow forward. That's the goal. And that's what we use hormone medications for or the IVF protocol. However, the act of getting the eggs out of the body is what the egg retrieval is. Interestingly, the egg retrieval is a minimally invasive procedure that is more modern day IVF. When IVF first started, this is not how things were done. Really, things were done so differently because we didn't have medications to grow multiple eggs. So you would grow the one egg that your body would be ovulating naturally. And they would go in with surgery, like abdominal surgery, to go put a small needle into that follicle and drain it. So what is a follicle and what is an egg? A follicle is the fluid-filled structure that an egg grows inside. So every egg is inside a follicle, and as the egg matures, the follicle gets bigger and really just gets more fluid. So when you are doing the egg retrieval, you are draining the follicles by puncturing the follicle with a needle, draining the fluid, and in process, getting the egg as well. You typically have a one-to-one follicle-to-egg ratio if the follicles are in the mature range. Now, the way I like to describe this to patients is think about when somebody draws your blood. They take a needle and they put it in your vein and there's a little tube and they put that tube on a little vacuum seal into the test tube that you think about that collects your blood and the blood goes into the test tube. Really, the egg retrieval is the same idea. So you put a needle into the follicle, the fluid comes out, goes through a connecting tube and into the test tube. That test tube then gets passed off to the lab, and you have an embryologist who is in the lab who is going to identify the eggs. They are looking through, and at that moment, the egg is surrounded by what we call the cumula cells, just like the cloud. They're fluffy. So you have these fluffy clouds all surrounding the eggs. This is why at the moment of an egg retrieval, nobody can tell you how many mature eggs you have. You may have wondered that. All we know is a starting number. How many eggs did you get out at the egg retrieval? Your eggs can be a germinal vesicle, totally immature. They can be an M1, which means they've completed meiosis 1, which means they are very close to being fully mature, but they're not. They can be an M2, which means they've completed meiosis 2, and they can now be fertilized by sperm. Those are your mature eggs. Those are the ones you want. And they can be post-mature, over-mature, degenerated. So most people have a range of a follicle size. We'll say it's around 15 to 20 millimeters, but it does depend on the person and on the protocol. Things like Clomid, Letrozole, those medications actually need a bigger follicle size to be mature. And each mature egg typically makes around 200 picograms of estrogen. So during your monitoring, which are all those ultrasounds and the blood work leading up to the egg retrieval, your team is trying to decide when you have the most mature eggs. And we are doing this based on follicle size and your estrogen level. And everybody's a little different. So your first egg retrieval, we're using these average numbers. And I certainly have patients who have a very narrow range of maturity, and you really don't know until you get eggs into the lab. But if you do a cycle and you have a high amount of immaturity, that's okay, it does happen. But you're doing a second cycle, this is where my red flag is. 
if nobody addresses it, if nobody says, because you had a higher percentage of immaturity than we expected based on your follicle sizes or your estrogen, we are now going to do blah, 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 a longer trigger interval, push to bigger follicle size, try to get you to a further stage of development, change the protocol, something. But at the egg retrieval itself, what we're doing, again, putting a needle into the follicle, draining the fluid, fluid goes into the test tubes, test tubes get passed to embryologists, embryologist sees the egg surrounded in their fluffy cumulus cells, gives you a number. Later on, the embryologist will strip or cut off all the cumulus. They can then say, you have so many mature eggs, and this is going to be based on what they can see under the microscope after they strip off those cumulus cells. So the problem is that when we draw blood from your arm, it's super easy because your veins are right there under the surface. And your ovaries, in the majority of people, actually, when they grow follicles, they're really at the top of the vagina. So they are connected to your pelvic sidewall by some ligaments, and they are connected to the side of the uterus by some ligamentous tissue, but they're really not connected to the uterus or the fallopian tubes in any way, and they are mobile. So the ovaries typically move around, and that's normal. When you're undergoing IVF and these follicles are growing, that makes the ovaries heavier, you'll feel the pelvic pressure, but that really drops them into the pelvis, and now they tend to sit really at the top of the vagina, right behind the uterus, very easy to access. So when we're putting that needle in, we're really just going at the top and the side of the vaginal tissue. And that's a direct entry point into what we call the peritoneum or the abdominal cavity. And ideally, if there's an ovary right there, we're going right from vaginal tissue right into the follicle. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual is essential for women 18 and plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their essential for women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry-leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. 
Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Okay, so this is where we need to undergo something. So the Retrieval Podcast. The Retrieval Podcast is following people who had an egg retrieval and were undergoing IVF at Yale. Nothing against Yale, but in this podcast, it turns out what had happened is one of the nurses was stealing fentanyl, which is an opioid pain medication, and replacing it with saline. So she was taking bottles that said fentanyl and putting saline in it. There's some questions here because why is it opened, etc. Who's not keeping a good log of this? But presumably this is an employee who is tampering with things and there's nothing that could be done about that. There are bad people all over. So people who underwent the egg retrieval did not get fentanyl, the normal pain medication. They got saline or water or nothing. That's terrible. What is inexcusable and what's really hard to listen to if you listen to it is people explaining how in their egg retrieval, they were in excruciating pain, calling out, telling people they were in pain and essentially being told that there was nothing they could do, they couldn't give them anymore, and that they had to sit there and suffer through it. So it is tough. I'll say this, right? Because an egg retrieval is extremely time sensitive. From the moment we give you the trigger shot, we have a very narrow window of which to get the eggs, meaning they have to get to maturity, but if you don't get them in time, they'll ovulate. So it is a narrow window, but nobody should be forced to be in pain. Part of the issue with how they do anesthesia, which is how it's done in some countries or other clinics. And some clinics will tell you they do this to save you money. They do a sedation protocol administered by a clinic nurse or personnel, not an anesthesia provider, not somebody who does anesthesia. And this is more what we call conscious sedation, where you're conscious, you are awake, and somebody gives you pain medication and some anxiety medication, and you're supposed to be not bothered by the very large needle and the ultrasound in your vagina poking into your abdominal cavity and your ovaries. And the more eggs you have, the more pokes there are, the more the needle is moving around from place to place. And so it's really hard to know, and I have not talked to, nor do I know any of the people who are practicing at this time. This is not how IVF is done in a lot of places. So this is an important point because you should ask, am I going to be going to sleep or will I be awake during the egg retrieval? If you want to prepare for the egg retrieval, this is question number one. Question number two, what medications am I getting? Who is doing it? So I'll tell you what we do to contrast what happened in the retrievals. We have an anesthesia provider, we have an anesthesiologist, and they're going to give you IV medication. You get propofol and fentanyl, so a pain medication and propofol, medication to make you go to sleep. So you're sleeping. Now, as compared to general anesthesia, like you're having your appendix taken out, you then are also paralyzed. So in general anesthesia, when you have laparoscopy, you are going to have a muscle relaxer as a part of that anesthesia so that you don't move. And when that happens, you have to have a tube down your throat and be put on a breathing machine because if you're paralyzed, you can't breathe. This is not general anesthesia. This anesthesia is putting you to sleep. You're not aware or conscious of it. You have no recollection of it. You're going 
to sleep with propofol. And then when you wake up, you will have some crampy pain. It's not a pain-free experience to put a needle into your ovaries and to drain it out. I don't think anybody expects it to be pain-free. Oh, you should not have pain during. You should not remember having pain during. If you're having pain, it should be addressed. That's the entire second part. That's an issue that the retrievals really highlights is not believing women's pain and medical gaslighting of telling people that they're not having pain that they are. And that's a whole separate issue. And I can't imagine having this many people be in this much discomfort and just carrying on and thinking it was normal. But that's because my whole career, 10 plus years, I've never done retrievals in that scenario. I've always had an anesthesia person giving somebody propofol, patients asleep, do not recall any of the procedure. So you should ask about the anesthesia experience if you are not told. All right. So you are going to be moved to a procedure room. In the procedure room, there's an anesthesiologist who's going to give you medication through the IV. Your legs will be put up in what we call lithotomy, you know, stirrups, typical positioning for a gynecologist. And once you're asleep, then there is a guide that gets attached to the normal vaginal ultrasound that you experience, Wanda, who y'all became friends during the monitoring, there's a little guide that goes onto the ultrasound and that allows the needle to go through it in a certain plane that you can anticipate. The needle that you use is like a foot long, so it's quite long and it's a pretty thick gauge because the eggs have to pass through it. So it's definitely a much thicker needle than what you're using to draw blood out of your arm. The procedure really does not take long. I usually say it takes about 20 minutes, including go to sleep, wake up time. But a few things can make it take longer the more eggs you have and if your anatomy is difficult. And so that can mean endometriosis, prior abdominal surgery or known abdominal scar tissue, uterine fibroids, being overweight, all of these things can make it harder to get the angle. The ultrasound is straight and the needle is straight. So we have to get a straight line from where we are. And you know the vagina, it's a potential space, but it has boundaries. It doesn't just expand everywhere. So we have to be able to maneuver this straight line to get the angle and the plane into your ovary. And that can be tough with certain situations. Now, typically because you're asleep, one of the advantages is that if anatomy is difficult for any numerous reason, I can have an assistant put pressure abdominally and they can hold an ovary in place or crazy enough, even twist your uterus, try to push because I don't want anything getting between the ovary and the vagina. And if your ovary is stuck up to your uterus, well, what else is in here? Intestines, bladder, blood vessels. And so when you sign up for an egg retrieval, you are going to fill out consent. And I promise you, it is going to say there is a risk of infection, bleeding, or damage to surrounding structures, including bowel and bladder. And those are all accurate. Those are all known risks when you go through IVF. Now they should be minimized, but even in very experienced hands, things can happen and understanding how to manage those or identifying them is key. And of course, this is why those of us in the field do get nervous about people being trained to do egg retrieval in a crash course, because you have to really be an expert of ultrasound to be able to watch your needle 
and feel very confident, especially in patients that might have more challenging anatomy. That said, we are normally able to get eggs with zero complications from the vast majority of people. Occasionally, we won't get eggs from an ovary, and we deem it is too dangerous. This probably happens one time a year that I'll walk out of an egg retrieval and I'll tell somebody, I wasn't able to get this ovary because there was no good plane, meaning no way I could get to those follicles without risking damaging something. And in all of these patients, there's been a reason, typically endometriosis or prior abdominal scarring. I will say you usually have a sense of this because the ovaries move and you can see them move on ultrasound. And if they're really not moving and you always have an ovary really far away or at the top of the uterus, you're going to start to get suspect that it is stuck there. I do think this gets lost in translation at programs where doctors don't do the ultrasounds and they're going in blind to the egg retrieval because that's some programs. They have an ultrasound tech or you see a variety of people and then you'll just see a doctor for the egg retrieval. But at our practice at Fora, it's one of the two doctors doing the scans. You see us both. And so we're really able to say, hey, I'm worried about this ovary. And I'll tell patients, hey, I'm worried about this ovary. And as I said, these complications are very, very rare. So, you know, I love studies. Okay, so looking at over 7,000 IVF cycle, the frequency of a severe complication was 0.08%. So less than 0.1%. The most common were intraperitoneal bleeding. So intraabdominal bleeding, 0.06%. And the next most common complication was a pelvic abscess or an infection in 0.03%. Again, very few people. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer's upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a caraway for every cook. Their internet famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. 
This deal is exclusive for our listeners. So visit carawayhome.com slash A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. All right. Well, bleeding. Bleeding is probably the most dangerous complication, of course, because it has the most potential to go bad very quickly. When you do an egg retrieval, there's a lot of different blood vessels. And so you want to make sure that the pelvis is what we call hemostatic and you don't see any free or active bleeding during the case after you get the egg retrievals. You do often have free fluid. I mean, you are poking a needle into the ovary and those puncture sites alone can bleed. And I've had a patient bleed from just the puncture sites, no vessel injury, just where the needle went into the ovary and had to go to the operating room and get some blood drained out of her abdomen. So it's not unheard of. It's just very, very, very unlikely. You also could have vessel injury. The point of saying this is that it's going to be evaluated. Your vital signs should show or you symptomatically will feel wrong if you're losing blood internally. And your team will give you warnings, but it's typically you start to feel lightheaded, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure decreases, you're not going to urinate, your abdomen's going to get distended, you might start to look pale. So you're going to get these warning signs. Again, it's good to know what could happen. Now infection, most of us give somebody antibiotics, an IV dose at the time of retrieval to decrease the chance of a pelvic abscess. This is because we're going from vagina into your abdominal cavity, non-sterile to sterile area. Not everybody gives antibiotics, but most people do now. When do you really, really need antibiotics is going to be if you have endometriosis and that endometriosis is entered, then your risk of an ovarian abscess or an infection goes up. So those patients definitely need antibiotics. Other complications are damage to bowel, like your intestines, damage to bladder, or Very rarely, I've had one case in fellowship that an attending, so somebody who's very experienced, actually hooked the ureter, which is the connecting tube from the kidney to the bladder. And so the ureter had an injury and developed a fistula connecting tract from the ureter to the vagina. So this patient presented with pain, but then leaking urine out of her vagina. And it was able to be fixed. She's fine. So it's a procedure. Every procedure has risks. No procedure is risk-free. These complications happen in less than 0.01% of people, which makes it a very safe procedure. But you want it to be done in trained hands so that somebody can identify complications or know how to handle them. Okay, well, most likely in 99.99% of people, you're going to have zero complications at all. So what's going to happen? After 20 minutes of your procedure, you are going to roll back into the recovery room and you'll be in the PACU for about 30 minutes to an hour as you wake up. Your vitals will be checked, make sure everything looks good, and then you are going to be dismissed, but then what? So your ovaries are still pretty large. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that patients typically, at least in my experience, believe that, oh, once these eggs are drained and these follicles are drained, my ovary will be small and I'll feel better. And actually what happens often is that these follicles are drained, but then some blood fills up inside and blood is heavier than water. So your ovaries are actually heavier. So your pelvic pressure may increase. And because the needle went into the ovary, you're going to have cramping as the ovary is working on healing. And the more eggs you got, the worse these symptoms will often be. So 
on the bright side of having fewer eggs is that your symptoms from the retrieval process is going to be much more minimal. Your hormones won't shift as much because estrogen correlated with number of eggs and physical symptoms are correlated with estrogen size of ovaries. So ultimately, the more you have, you might have to do IVF less, but you're going to notice it physically more. So you'll have cramping, you'll get medication in the PACU, you'll be sent home. Your pain should be able to be controlled with really over-the-counter pain medication. If it's not, call your doctor. You might need to be on a little pain schedule, so find out what they want you to take, but it should not be terrible pain or we're worried something's wrong. Pain is a sign from your body. All right, and then just so you know, at the time of egg retrieval, your hormones were peak high, highest they are going to be. And they're going to drop really rapidly because we destroyed the cells that make estrogen. It's that drop from high to low that makes a lot of people feel emotional. If you think about those PMS symptoms that are more sensitive or emotional, it's really coming in that time frame. So I tell patients the week after your egg retrieval to expect to not feel as stable as you might otherwise be. You are also still going to be bloated and you might have some vaginal bleeding or spotting. I tell patients two weeks after egg retrieval, no swimming, no baths, no intercourse, no tampons, nothing in the vagina. We do not want that pelvic ovarian abscess. So we want to keep everything clean. I live in Texas. It's over hundred degrees. I know people want to get in the pool. I also don't want you scheduling your egg retrieval right before your best friend's wedding or your big trip to Hawaii without you being aware that you can't get in the ocean or you're going to be more bloated in your dress. Whatever it is, it's your life and your decision, but you should know that when you walk out of the egg retrieval, it's not poof, everything's gone. You're still going to have some residual side effects for at least a couple more weeks until those ovaries heal down. Same thing goes for exercise restrictions. Those ovaries are still large and you can still get ovarian torsion. Ovarian torsion is from the twisting of the ovary. And so that ovary twists upon itself and you're at a higher risk to get torsion if your ovaries are big. And then when you have torsion, it can be a surgical emergency that could result in losing your ovary. So that's a really big deal. So you're still on exercise restrictions for those couple weeks after the retrieval as well. Now, if you got a high egg count or your estrogen was high, you might be a little electrolyte deficient. And this is why people might crave salt because you can start to third space fluid. That is what it means. If you think about inside your blood vessels, you have blood and water is a big component of the blood. The water can migrate out the walls of the blood vessels and leave your blood really concentrated. But meanwhile, you're bloated because you've got water in your abdomen and your legs and other places. This is called third spacing, and it can happen when you have a high estrogen. One of the body's natural mechanisms to counteract this is to have salt because sodium helps keep fluid in the blood vessels. So if you feel your body craving salt, forget about what's healthy or not, lean into it. And this is why people used to have the entire McDonald's French fries after embryo transfers or egg retrieval situation you may have heard of was because when you would do a fresh transfer five days after the egg retrieval, if you got pregnant and your body had HCG, that really increased the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation, which is all about this third spacing situation. 
And so by having salt, you would decrease the risk of that. This is why you'll hear people say to get McDonald's fries after your egg retrieval. It's old school from back on the fresh transfer days, but it's a fun tradition in the fertility community to have things salty after your egg retrieval. Plan to take it easy, but you do not need to be bedridden, nor do we expect you to be. You should be up and living your normal life. You should be walking around, moving your blood. You don't want to get blood clots or things like that. Do plan to take the day of the egg retrieval off from work because you are getting anesthesia and you should not think, oh, I'll just work this afternoon or I'll go work the night shift. That's a big no. You will be able to work the next day, but you're still going to be physically a little uncomfortable. So just think about that depending on what your line of work is. And I know as long as you're prepared for it, you'll do fine. Your entire time in the surgery center or the IVF lab will be typically a couple hours. So most places have you get there an hour before. Procedure takes about 20 minutes. You'll stay about 30 minutes to an hour after, and then you will be on your way. You should ask, how will you get notified about your results? So that's one of the biggest things is that people get confused on what to do next and how are they going to get their news. So depending on your plan, you should know, what am I going to do when my period starts? I'm going to start birth control pills. Am I calling you? Am I starting a cycle? Am I starting a loop around beforehand to get into another cycle? What is your next step? You should know that. And number two you should know, how am I going to find out about my eggs or my embryos? Who is going to notify you and when? Because every clinic and every lab is different. Are you getting a phone call? Are you getting an email? Are you getting a portal message? Is it a nurse? Is it your doctor? Is it an embryologist? Every place is different. And that's important because one, you want to know who you can ask questions to. At one clinic I worked at, the nurses called and they physically picked up the phone and called But they are not embryology experts, so they could answer zero, zero questions. Now, we have the embryologists in an email. And so if you have a question, you can reply. And you have the embryo expert on the other end of that email telling you what you need to know about your embryos. And I think that's very valuable. So you should know who and how am I going to get information. Ultimately, for any procedure, you should be prepared. The risks with an egg retrieval are much more minimal than almost any other procedure, definitely more minimal than any surgery you could ever have. It is much safer than when IVF first started and you had to do surgery to go get those follicles. But nothing is risk-free, so know what symptoms to be on the lookout for, and you should not be in pain. So if I'm going to make a list, number one, Who's doing the anesthesia? What's the anesthesia situation? Number two, who's doing your egg retrieval? Is this a clinic that does your doctor? Is it doctor of the day? Is it a nurse? Is it a PA? Is it an OBGYN that didn't do fertility training that went to a weekend course? You should just know. You deserve to know who is doing the retrieval. Number four, what am I to do afterwards? What are my warning signs? Who will I call? How will I communicate if something's abnormal? Number five, what are my next steps? What cycle are you going to do next? Are you waiting for results? What's your game plan? I hate seeing patients miss an entire month because nobody told them what to do. And number six, how are you hearing from the lab? Is it your lab, your clinic, how and who is going to be communicating your results with you? And then lastly, I'll say it is a procedure under anesthesia. So it's really important to 
tell anesthesia any of your medical history. Did you have a lot of bleeding after that other procedure on your cervix? Do you have a bleeding disorder? Have you ever had a blood clot? Anybody in your family have a reaction to anesthesia? Do you have allergies to any medications? Please tell them everything. And then you're going to need a support person to drive you and then take you home. Uber is not okay. It is not okay to get in a car post-anesthesia with a stranger. You need to have somebody who can look out for you. And I really prefer my patients not to be home alone the first night. So if you're egg freezing and you're single and you live by yourself, it'd be awesome if your sister, mom, bestie, whoever could sleep over that night just to make sure you have an extra set of hands in case you need anything or in case anything goes wrong. Ultimately, egg retrieval should not be something you worry about. I know it is the most invasive part, but it's a minimally invasive procedure. And in trained hands, it really goes smoothly 99.99% of the time. It's just knowing what to do in those small other circumstances so that you can be prepared. All right, well, now we're going to move on to answering your fertility questions. Again, you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and we will answer some here, and we will answer some on the newsletter, nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter, and some on Instagram itself every single Monday. Can you conceive naturally with one fallopian tube after a salpingectomy post-ectopic? This is funny because one of my best friends actually texted me this week and said, OMG, I just found out you can get pregnant with only one fallopian tube. To which I responded, wow, it's really obvious you don't watch any of my YouTube videos or listen to the podcast. But truly, I know this is confusing. Remember, as we said, the ovaries move around and the fallopian tubes move around. I use the analogy, you know that red inflatable balloon person who sits outside the car dealership or the mattress store that has these long arms that kind of wiggle around as the air shoots into it. That's your uterus and your fallopian tubes. So those tubes move around. So let's say you had an ectopic and that one tube went away. Now you just have one remaining one. It can move around. Ovary and tube are not connected. When the ovary ovulates, the egg goes into the peritoneal cavity or the abdominal cavity and the tube sucks it into the fallopian tube. We always say that the fallopian tubes are attracted to eggs. So if you're ovulated on the opposite side and you have no tube there, the other tube is attracted to try to still grab that egg. So even though your chance of pregnancy might drop if you only have one tube, it is still definitely possible. I just found out I have a uterine polyp and I'm in my second month of trying to conceive. Should I take it out or leave it in? I take these out. A polyp is mostly a benign piece of endometrium. It's like an endometrial projection, but it can cause inflammation and decrease implantation. Also, not every polyp is benign. The vast majority are, but I have had a few patients have non-benign polyps and you don't know unless it comes out and gets sent off to the lab. So to me, if you find them, they come out. I don't know why we would leave them in without knowing that it's not cancer and to accepting a decrease in our pregnancy rates. Advice on conceiving my second child. I have stage three, four endo and had excisional surgery before my first. I do have a whole podcast that's recent on endometriosis and fertility. So truly would listen to that. The take home message is that repeat excisional surgery does not have any benefit for fertility. So we cannot anticipate that that itself will help us. I always say 
It's a new environment. So if we have anything that hinders our fertility, like known endo, get checked. How's your egg count? How are your fallopian tubes in your uterus? How's the sperm? If things are fine, you can try to expedite care. Just track and try normally. You can try to expedite by maybe doing ovulation induction and IUI a little bit earlier, which has been shown to help somewhat in endometriosis. But ultimately, a large portion of patients with stage 3, 4 do need to go on to IVF. And as we know, IVF success is highest if you have more eggs and if you're younger. So if you potentially need that, we do want to do that earlier in your journey. The only other thing I'll say is that I recommend patients, if you're amenable to it and you don't have any side effects between children, go on some type of ovulation suppressant so that you have a lower risk of progression of disease in between pregnancies. What do you recommend for the preparation and protocol for embryo transfer for the second if the first one ended in miscarriage? Honestly, it depends why you miscarried and at what stage because let's say you miscarried, it was an untested embryo and we think it was genetically abnormal, I would do the exact same protocol because you got an implantation. If you had implantation and then you had just failure of development of a regular embryo or you're having very, very early losses, I might consider a different protocol, but it depends on the entire clinical picture. Could you have endometriosis? Could you have adenomyosis? Could you have PCOS? Have you gotten pregnant before? How old are you? So it's not a clear cut. I would always do this. Sometimes I do the exact same protocol. It depends on the clinical scenario. So that's a really good question. Sit down, have a WTF appointment with your doctor and make sure you understand their rationale. Why do IUIs have such low success rates? This is a good question, and it's always interesting because people think that IUIs are going to improve their ability to get pregnant, and it does for certain people with infertility, take them to their age-related norm, but it's not going to ever exceed that, and in certain circumstances, it will never even get close. Endometriosis, unexplained infertility, and IUI is not going to get you higher than 10%, even if it's combined with ovarian stimulation medications. And it's truly because all we're doing is moving sperm. But we're not helping them fertilize. We're not changing the environment. We're not changing the egg. We're not testing anything for genetics. We're not optimizing anything. All we are doing is getting sperm closer to where it needs to be. So what are your age-related chances of conceiving? That is the absolute best you could get with an IUI. And if you have infertility, your chances are lower. So we're trying to get you closer to that. But depending on the type of infertility, your age, your diagnosis, many times it's not going to be better than 10%. And that is stinky, right? Less than one out of 10 people who do an IUI are going to get pregnant per month. But we have to remember that our natural fecundability is not very high, right? Like at best, it's 20 to 25% per month. So we think about 10% is really low because we think about 100, but humans don't have 100. We have 20 to 25% as our best. So you have to change your frame of reference because there's a lot in human reproduction that doesn't work. Most months, people don't get pregnant. All right. Well, remember, you can ask your questions on Instagram every Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. You can also call and leave a voicemail for my favorite episodes at 657-229-3672. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. 
I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.